Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favorite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. We're back, boys and girls. And guess what? It is our Act One finale. Crazy town. Act One finale. Here we are. Episode 12. Like, I, okay. People probably listening to this podcast are probably thinking Bobby makes a really big deal about this. And I promise (laughs) going forward, I will keep it to like milestones, but I truly never knew we would get to this point. Did you? No, it's really exciting. It's also really exciting because uh, we are going to be taking a break after this for a couple of weeks, but there's lots of exciting things happening during your intermission. Um, And we will get to those a little bit later. Absolutely. Super, super excited about announcing some stuff. Oh, my gosh. Okay. well, so you have asked me, I feel like, first for the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to ask you first this time. Christina, for our Act One finale, tell our listeners, what have you been listening to? I've been listening to the first musical I was ever in, okay. which was Godspell. Oh, Godspell. You love Godspell. I and, do love Godspell. But I don't really know why. I just know that you do. <laughs> so I'm excited for you to tell me right now. What is it about Godspell that is your favorite? I think that the reason I love it so much is, like I just said, it was the first musical I was ever actually in. Um, our our church had a really big music program and we would do a musical every year. Like we did Sound of Music, we did Pirates of Penzance, we did all of those. But this was um, the first time I entered into the program because I like aged into it, right? Okay. Um, and this is what we got to do. And I was like, of course, they add an entire ensemble because that's what you do. Whatever right. you could do it on Broadway too. What it's yeah, fine. you can. <laughs> um, and it was also one of the first movie musicals I ever saw. Okay, that my dad introduced me to, and I just really fell in love with the magic of it. Um, being someone who grew up in church, it was a way to look at this and have an opinion. Okay, um, about you know, the apostles and the teachings of Jesus and getting to look at it from Judas's point of view. I was in a very progressive church where we got to ask those questions and have those conversations. Um, And so the actual process of doing this show allowed us to have those conversations, which was really fun and exciting for, you know, a 12 year old who's just like entering into the world of creating their own thoughts and creating their own feelings about things. Um, But I also love the music. (laughs) It's just so it's so fun. And I know that this show is problematic uh, in the greater scheme of things, but it really has always just touched me. And I think that's based on my experience with it more than anything. I think that as young artists exploring theater, I think that this is a show that allows them to explore it and have conversations about interpretation and and what you can do with material, right? Absolutely. I, you know, Godspell, 
I personally, as a non-religious person, I am obsessed with religious musicals. And I think, <laughs> and there's probably 5 million reasons why, but I think it, you know, it makes a lot of these stories really accessible to me from the outside. But what I love about, there's several things I love about Godspell, but you know, the biggest is the simplicity of the score. Stephen mm. Schwartz has gone on 50 million times to show how complex he can be as a composer. Yeah. But it really, like you said, it comes from the realm of these tribe musicals like Hair. It is so simplistic, which allows you sometimes for the best, sometimes for the worst, to, you know, uh, trans to, to, to transpose these songs into other things, to, to present the show in different ways. It doesn't have to be a hippie tribe. You know, you can present mm -hmm. Godspell in so many different ways in the show. Even in a bad production, it's still a strong piece of theater. I think the closest thing I could compare it to is Joseph, but Joseph is so incredibly specific. It's like, yes. this is the country Western number. This is the 60s pop song. It's this, this. Yeah. Godspell allows the performers, the storytellers, and I think the director, also a storyteller, to really very bare bones uh, tell this beautiful story. So I, I think that there's something really special about it. I love its simplicity and I, and I love what it offers. All right, Bobby, tell me, what have you been listening to this week? I mean, I'm kind of on brand with you by doing like an early show by a legendary Broadway composer. Uh, this week, I listened to one of my favorites, uh, and that's William Finn's In Trousers, which, <gasps> which for those of you who don't know, I mean, I hope you know who William Finn is, and not just because of Spelling Bee, but also because of the Falsettos trilogy. People trilogy. don't realize there are three of them because not just Falsetto Land and March of the Falsettos, part one in trousers from the 1970s uh, that rarely gets done is such a, a, a it's a, such a beautiful look into the like beginnings of Mr. William Finn as a composer. Yeah, totally. um, but also that cast. I mean, you have Chip Zian before he was Mendel. He was Marvin. He was the first Marvin. Like, <laughs> And then you have, you know, our favorite Mary Testa as Miss Goldberg. Hello, Mary Testa. Yeah, I just the songs. I I discovered yeah. it in college. It was one of those first. Uh, it's not even a flop. It's just to show that again, it evolved into this trilogy, yeah. and the the the, set, the parts two and three became the primary focus. Um, it was one of those unknown shows or lesser known shows that I latched onto. Um, you know, for a long time, I really wanted to play Marvin in it. Uh, you know, Chip Zian's Marvin, I feel like is very Bobby, maybe not the other Marvins, but I, you know, I really wanted to sing the songs. Um, I played them all the time. My roommate in college got <laughs> so annoyed by some of them because there are some songs that I love that are also like High School Ladies at 5 o'clock or Scrubby Dubby Look at Marvin and the Tubby. So anytime I would get really pissed off at her, I would blast those in our apartment. Oh, spectacular. And um, yeah, there were lots of fights that happened over in Trousers playing. Oh, no, I love it. And I wanted to listen to something that's always meant a lot to me. Uh, as we move into this epic Act One finale, right? Act One finale! Special episode. So we're doing this Act One finale, our Tony Awards special. Uh, I think we've said that, and if not, it's the Tony Awards special. Because, Tony Awards! Well, because in real life, the Tony Awards would be happening this week, yes. and not in September like they announced last week. And we would be doing a watch party with all of you. Which, by the way... We will absolutely be doing over cocktails on September 26th. Oh, it's happening. Well, so instead, we decided to do our very own Tony special and celebrate a very special 
Tony-centric episode. Yes. Uh, so before we get into it, Christina, we should totally do the clues, right? Yes! Let's give them the clues. All right. So clue number one, which we gave at the end of the last episode, was this. Bing Crosby produced this Tony Award-winning musical. Hmm. And then our second one, which was on Twitter, was Frank Sinatra recorded one of the musical songs in 1959, resulting in it becoming a popular standard. Hmm. Which was followed by our photo clue on Instagram, which probably threw you all for a loop, but I did it on purpose. <laughs> and it was a picture of Julie Andrews from the poster of Thoroughly Modern Millie. I mean, it confused me. There we go. All right. Clue number four, which was the blog post, was all about five musical flops based on foreign films. And if you haven't guessed it yet, here is clue number five, which I'm hoping for our flop fanatics listening, this gives it away. Uh, but it's this. <laughs> Dolores Gray won the Tony Award for Best Actress for this musical. And today it remains the shortest lived Tony honored performance ever, having won for technically playing six performances. But I, I read somewhere that she only did five of those six performances. Oh, no, really? Like she called out once. So <laughs> five performances. Uh, wow. Drum roll, That's right? That's how you do it. Yes. Drum roll, please. <gasps> Carnival and Flanders. Ta da! I feel like everyone listening is probably scratching their heads right now being like, yeah. what is this show? Wait, what? This is our Tony special. What's happening? <laughs> no, but I promise you it's going to be good. I, I, Yeah, this is, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to to share some of the secret sauce on this one. This is not a show that Bobby and Christina came to the table with. Uh, this is one that our amazing uh, producer, Stephen Weston, uh, pulled out of his hat and said, I think this is the Tony episode. And we were both like, neither of us know anything about this musical. <laughs> and it was, I think, the first time so far that neither of us went into the research on this one with any prior knowledge, right? Yes, that's completely correct. So this is a special treat for y'all because I, usually there's some kind of familiarity. This one went like point blank. So yeah. uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. Where should we start with this? We should probably start with the synopsis, right? We should start with the synopsis. It's, okay. It's pretty silly. Okay, here we go. It is 1616 in the town of Flaxenburg in Flanders, a.k.a. the Dutch in Belgium. When the Spanish army invades Flaxenburg. Say that again. Flaxenburg. Yes. The mayor of Flaxenburg decides to play dead in hopes that the army will leave. Plans become complicated when the head of the army, the Duke, becomes infatuated with the mayor's wife, Cornelia. The mayor is forced to continue to play dead and watch as the Duke pursues his wife. It's a comedy. Uh, side note, <laughs> why are so many musical comedies about falling in love with another man's wife? I don't know, but... Friends, do not covet thy neighbor's wife. All right. Anyways, moving on. Okay, so uh, we're also going to start this with a review because it's just too good to not quote. Okay. okay. In his review, the New York Times, Brooks Atkinson, wrote, As an actress, Dolores Gray is authoritative enough to bring down the house with some maudlin songs. In the version prepared for the stage by Preston Sturgis, it is laborious and banal. 
as usual, the theater has lavished a lot of wealth and talent on this hokum. Wait, what does hokum mean? Uh, it means trite, sentimental, uh, unrealistic situations, basically nonsense. Wow, that's exactly what you want a reviewer to write about you. <laughs> I know, right? Just the worst. Uh, the review also said Lucinda Ballard has dressed everybody to the nines, although Oliver Smith's scenery is cluttered and rather desperate. There is certainly a lot of it. Okay, so there's so much <laughs> to unpack here. This show clearly didn't great great reviews, but... You know, no, the description reviews, the description doesn't sound too offbeat to be a musical. No. And I, I, I could buy it based on what we've said so far. I could totally buy it again. We know more than the listener does at this point. So uh, yeah. we will say it's based on a movie and it's actually based off a really popular movie, right? Yes. So it's based off a Belgian film. It was a rom-com, same premise. Uh, it's almost directly lifted, I think, from the film, based on my research. Okay. Um, but the film came out in 1935 and was a massive hit internationally, like everywhere. The director won the Vienna Film Festival for Best Direction in it. They really loved it. But then when World War II came around, Germany actually banned it and a few other German-occupied countries because they felt that it was unflattering to the Nazis. But it actually, it was so bad that it actually forced the creators to seek refuge in Switzerland. Like, oh. that's how much they hated it. Which is crazy, because I read somewhere after the war was <laughs> over, there were countries that had problems with it because they thought it was sympathetic to the Nazis because in the plot, like, the Spanish occupation right. becomes friendly with the town. So it was like, oh... It's about making compromise and letting and people take And this all came over. from a rom-com. Like, it's not serious, friends. This it's a movie... wacky movie. Yeah, it's silly. <laughs> it's a wacky, wacky film. It's actually considered, like, one of the greatest films ever made, I believe. Like, it's, oh, it's yeah. in that it's in that top list. Oh, absolutely. And um, the director slash writer-ish, because uh, there were a couple people who officially wrote it, but he is credited for writing it as well. Jacques Fader. I'm sure. Not I believe you. French. Uh, or, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Continue. Sorry. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the, the movie was a big fat hit. And you can understand why they were like, yeah, this makes a great musical. Movies already guaranteed to have been successful. So that means that we can make a successful show. Right. Well, and, and it was such an interesting film, too, because being mm -hmm. made in the 1930s, uh, you know, two years after Hitler came to power, you know, Hitler became chancellor of Germany in 1933. This movie was made in 1935. Um, you know, the movie is weirdly for the time period, very feminist. The whole idea that all the men in this village are so afraid, you know, over the top ridiculous about these broody Spanish men who are not actually broody at all. Right. And they, the, I mean, the Duke decides to pretend to be dead so he doesn't have to deal with them. And his wife... He's a possum. I mean, <laughs> basically. Well, and his wife and all of the women of the village, and they're like, okay, you guys are ridiculous. We're going to put on some big boy pants and take care of things. And they totally do. Like, yeah, they totally do. And so a weirdly feministic film from the 1930s, uh, you know, wacky comedy, a um, lot of like 
you know, the whole mistake and like, is he is he actually dead or not? And there's, right. a, you know, a young romantic subplot. It really is the perfect formula for a Broadway musical. Completely. On paper. So I, t- I totally understand why Bing Crosby was like, yeah, here's my money. Take it. Let's do a thing. Right. right. Like that makes complete sense. Um, And we should talk about the journey of the creation of this show because it's actually really fascinating. So we were really lucky and Bobby actually has the backers audition recording of this show, which is so unique, especially from that time period. I I don't know how many of those auditions really exist anymore, but it was Dorothy Fields and her brother Herbert were the original concept writers for the show. And they came in during out of town tryouts to kind of help fix the script. And so they were a part of this backers audition. And in this recording, Dorothy Fields is giving all of the in-between explanations about like how we get from song to song to song. And that was the most fun to listen to. Oh, and she's the most so ad- fascinating. She's the most adorable as well, too. Right. I like she just I, she has so many like quips as she's doing it. And she's like, <laughs> oh, but we don't need to do this right now. You guys totally get it. I mean, yeah. in 1950s speak. But yeah, um, yeah. She's super adorable. Super, super adorable. But through that, we actually learned a lot about what the original concept for this show was. Like originally, Jerome Robbins was supposed to choreograph um, and direct and direct. And he was he didn't end up doing any of the actual staging when it came to them putting on the productions going forward. But he was the original concept for the choreography, which you can imagine would be very physical. It would have a lot of tricks. It would have a lot of the things that make Jerome Robbins Jerome Robbins as a choreographer, oh, right? Oh, yeah. But he also like came up with this concept of a turntable. What? Turntable? I mean... Like, pre-Lay-Miz, pre-all of this. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> he was like, we're going to have an automated turntable and a treadmill. I mean, and that's pre-Annie. You got to give the references. Yeah. Like, I mean, Annie was famous for all those damn treadmills. Exactly. But and like, This before, came way before it. Decades before. Yeah. Decades um, before. That didn't end up happening, just to be clear. Like, once they got to Broadway, those things didn't exist, I don't think, right? They were I, just the original concepts. I, I really couldn't find that information. I, we do know mm-hmm. Jerome Robbins did not do the show in Philadelphia. Uh, it was Jack Cole uh, who choreographed it, who was one of Jerome Robbins's mentors. I mean, he mentored a lot of famous choreographers in the industry, but Jack Cole did it there, and it was directed by uh, Bregetane Winhurst out of town. Uh, and Bregetane was replaced uh, eventually by Preston Sturgis uh, as director and, you know, Helen Tamiris as choreographer. Anyway. It, yeah, and also, I should say that Sturgis threw everything out. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it had such a tumultuous creative journey, but in this backers audition, you get the sense of Definitely hearing Dorothy Fields talk about it, I can see why they were all excited about the show. Um, yes. And before we go further, I do want to tell people, for those of you who don't know, backers auditions, and I think they still happen a little bit, but before Michael Bennett pioneered the Broadway workshop, you know, which eventually became labs like they do now, this is what you did. And sometimes your show wasn't even written yet. And it was composers, book writers, producers, sometimes just sitting down at a piano to investors to be like, this is why you're going to give us the big bucks to put this on Broadway. And like Christina said, I mean, a lot of these were never made 
commercially, publicly available. And um, we are so incredibly lucky that we got to listen to this in preparation for today's episode. Yeah, it was so much fun. Uh, and it was it was funny. It was very reminiscent to me of what we all have now seen on YouTube of how they got the money for Greatest Showman. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the excitement through this recording existed and you could hear people reacting to what Dorothy was talking about and to the songs. And that was so it was it was really fun to be a voyeuristic fly on a wall for something like that. That was really special. Right. Okay, so we should talk about uh, Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen. So they were the composers of this show and they were the composers from the get. Well, they initially wanted Harold Arlen. Oh, right. But Harold Arlen, for unknown reasons, didn't do it. So they were right. second runners up. I don't they know. They were second runners up, but yeah. they were they were there. They were the creators of this backers audition yes. as well. Um, and so it was really their songs. Now, you may not recognize their names like right off the bat when we say them, but... So Jimmy Van Heusen, uh, especially, has done a ton of Broadway musicals, but he also has won like six or seven Oscars, I no think. No big deal. Just no know. big. You know, and uh, he he wrote for all the Rat Pack. I mean, some of the stuff that you would know would be like Love and Marriage. Come fly with me. Only the Lonely. Come dance with me. Call me irresistible. Ain't that a kick in the head? Like all of these songs that are just iconic iconic to the American songbook and Johnny Burke as well. I mean, he did Swinging on a Star, which won him an Oscar. Um, he was one of the creators of the Great American Songbook because he would um, basically join anybody and oh, just yeah. help write stuff. It was great. But once he was paired with Jimmy Van Heusen, uh, they wrote f like 40 hits, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Um but yes, uh, Pennies from Heaven, Pocketful of Dream, Only Forever. I mean, those are just some of the stuff that they did. You could go on a whole deep dive of their music. It was oh. incredible. Oh, yeah. Well, and then obviously, most importantly, because it was clue number three, they wrote the title song to the original film version of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yes. Uh, that was, again, used in the stage show. I think a couple of their songs made it to the final Broadway version. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, but um, Academy and Award nominated song. I don't know if it won, but. Yes. Um, but I mean, these guys were iconic oh, at yeah. the time, iconic at the time. So, of course, like having them attached to this project is major. And Sturgis was really well known prior to this for um, being one of the writers of Citizen Kane. Right. He he also wrote a, a really interesting play called Strictly Dishonorable that he wrote it in six days and then it ran for like three years. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? So like he had had this massive career and then as he comes to be a part of this show, he's actually on this crazy decline in right. his life. Like he was being audited by the IRS and like basically filing for bankruptcy. His wife was leaving him or something. I mean, it was just not not fun times for Mr. Sturgis. And then he comes to join this show. Well, this incredibly troubled show. I mean, yeah. multiple directors, changes in book writers, things like that. So by the time he steps in, several people have left the project and actors have left the project. And so it's definitely... He's trying to fix things. He's basically in as a doctor at this point, right? Yeah, for sure. It was originally conceptualized with John Raitt, who ended up going with it to Broadway. And John Raitt was a big time leading man at the time. 
but then you had him paired by the time they got to Broadway he had a completely new leading lady which was Dolores Gray and she is not as big of a name as him and I love that she was nominated for a Tony and won and he was not. <laughs> well, I mean, this. So in my research, I found this was his third Broadway flop in a row. And oh, my gosh. Third Broadway flop in a row. And after this closed, don't worry, because even though he didn't get a Tony nomination for this, he literally in the same Broadway season started in the pajama game, which, you know. Right. So right. He there was a silver lining there for him. So, yes. oh. no, that's true. That is very true. Uh, and Dolores Gray was really funny because she didn't have the biggest name at the time. She had right. done a couple of big things, right? Like the year before she did Two on the Isle. And then like what like brought her to the forefront was after she graduated RADA, she played Annie and Annie Get Your Gun on the West End, right? Oh, yeah. But that doesn't make her an American name. Um, and after this flop, she went to Hollywood and she she did a couple of things. She did Kismet the film and a couple things like that. And then afterwards, uh, she was actually Marilyn's vocal double. Did you know this? She was Mar Marilyn's vocal double in no business like show business. Oh, I had no idea. That's so Isn't crazy. That crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Um, and then she was, uh, she took over for Lansbury on the West End in Gypsy in the seventies. And then she was a part of my ultimate, which is Dr. Who oh, of in, in the eighties, which was, you know, you have to say that. Absolutely. Um, but she I read an interview with her and she had this really lovely quote where she said, what a gift that would be to have more of a permanent record. Only simply because she she quite often replaced big stars right. on shows. Um, she wasn't necessarily in a lot of original casts except for Carnival in Flanders. Right. right. That was the first original musical, original cast that she was a part of. And she didn't even get a cast album out well, of it. And I, and I saw a performance of her in the seventies singing her signature song mm. from the show, which we'll I'm sure talk about in a bit when we start kind of going through the music, uh, where she was, she was so bummed about it. She was like, you know, we never got to record the cast. Um, it played six performances in the fifties and, um, the show kind of just disappeared. Well, and we should probably talk about that, that year. Cause there was some big shows that happened that season. Oh yeah. I mean, you actually had Kismet on stage happening and you had oklahoma which was like a limited engagement thing but wildly popular of course um and then this was actually the year that the crucible premiered on broadway boy and that i know huge the original production of that guy huge hit um and we had wonderful town and you also had can can which won gwen verdon a tony i mean look it was a big season but i still feel that a musical based on this source material could have had a fighting chance i, oh, I think yeah. it's a wonderful idea for a musical but that said let's talk about the score because yeah listening to that backers audition the show is very exciting when dorothy fields talks about it yeah the music is not bad. I mean, they are obviously far from bad songwriters, but it's um I I would it was hard for me to picture it being a musical comedy. Listening I agree to that music. There were a lot of ballads. A lot of them. A lot of ballads for a a plot line that is so kooky. Right. And silly. And also, you mentioned this, how the plot line is so feminist, right? Yes. But yet, I think like 80% of the songs Are were sung by men. <laughs> male songs. I was so confused. Especially because, again, <laughs> Dolores Gray won. So like, 
I, I'm assuming that there must have been changes made in that world I by the mean, time they got to Broadway for her to be considered the leading lady, right? Um, and not a supporting leading lady. I, it's, <sighs> it's, I hope that that changed because I mean, it's but, just confusing. Like, like her big song from the show, Here's That Rainy Day, it doesn't yeah. surprise me that Sinatra and a lot of men ended up having success with it. Because yeah. Sinatra's version is amazing. Mm. And so is Dolores's. But it's like, where's the fun of like an I hate men? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or where's the fun of I just it was so bizarre. Like for a, a dominant female character like that, who is having fun and playing uh, these people and in playing these situations and yeah. leading the women of the town. I was like, I don't hear that reflected at all in this score it's not reflected at all in the music it's really weird it's so it's an weird. odd choice yeah um, and while we're talking about this i love that there's an entire song called ring the bell now in the original <laughs> yes in the original concept for the show there was a giant bell tower that was going to be like center stage right and like the focus of the set right and how great would it have been to have the bell tower so you actually got to ring a bell during the song ring the bell except that got cut no, <laughs> when and Sturgis was, jumped in <laughs> like there was this in Dorothy Fields being as charming as ever being like yeah. describing this funny moment of the same you know actor the bell ringer like running up and ringing the bell yep. throughout the show you know and you it's going this great to be this bit role. it's like, all physical comedy like <laughs> again she describes and, a very fun show that snip snip Snip. Yeah. That's what you were just doing, Christina. Was... Yes. Yeah, sorry. People can't see that. I no. was sniffing. She was sniffing. Scissors. scissors. Scissor fingers. Um, yeah, it was this. The backers audition was a lot of, like I said, a lot of fun to listen to. But you're right. The music was not intriguing. I didn't walk away humming any of the songs. No. Which is not what you want for a musical. And not just because this style of music doesn't speak to me because it really does. I love this style of music. This is what right. I grew up on. Um. I just really was like, I don't, I don't get it. Well, and that being said, the song that man is doing his worst to make good. Sure. Which I believe is the one that actually made it into the Broadway show. There is like a weird 70s cover that you sent me. Um, but it was so much fun. And you talk about like, where's the I hate men song? Right. That is that is very much in that vein. Um, it just doesn't go far enough with no. some of the lyrics, but it's it's so much fun to listen to this cover. I, where does it come from? So that is a recording. So two of the songs from the score, from the Broadway version of the score, ended up being recorded by our buddy, uh, Bruce Kimmel, uh, oh, on yes. his okay. Unsung Musicals series of albums from the 1990s. Uh, and that song specifically was recorded by Debbie Shapiro Gravit from Jerome Robbins Broadway. Oh, uh, I cool. believe Tony Award winner from that, um, who is on a lot of Bruce Kimmel's recordings uh, and also has albums with him as well. Uh, she's fantastic. But you're right. It doesn't it doesn't go far enough. It was interesting listening to the two songs he did there and Sinatra doing, you know, the popular song. Uh, and even Lena Horne does Ring <gasps> oh, the Bell. Yeah. But that is more interesting than the Ring the Bell that was in the show. I yes. don't know what changed. So well, it's it, Lena Horne. I mean, I mean Lena Horne makes everything sound spectacular. Yeah, but they added like new verses, like she's talking about yeah. a boy, like the lyrics have been changed. So 
I like that version of the song. The version they did in the backers audition, I was like sitting and I was like so like anxious because I was like, I want this song to be better. Like I know. It just makes me wonder because we're listening to this backers audition before the orchestrators are involved, mm-hmm. or at least we're seeing their work or hearing it, uh, before the arrangers are involved, before even the cast can really rehearse and get into the material. Well, it also sounded like they didn't have a full cast for this. It sounded like it was one or two, maybe three singers yeah, involved. It was a small group of people. Yeah. So it's it's I, it's really hard to completely judge the score because we don't know exactly what played on Broadway, right? Right. But yeah, we we should continue. I, I just have so many feelings about how I think Carnival and Flanders could make a really good musical. It could. But I don't know if the musical that was written should be done again. <laughs> no, I actually, you know, I was thinking about this because just by like reading the plot, it's something that I would want like Mary Rogers to get a hold of. I mean, yes, I, it, you know, like it's, it, it reminds me a bit of once upon a mattress. And like, I totally can hear that style in my head when I, when I would read through some of this stuff and even listening to Dorothy Fields talk about it. I'm like, this needs to be a Mary Rogers score. (laughs) I, well, it's such a shame that Dorothy Fields was not involved with the music. I on know. This one. I think that actually could have helped a lot. She has so much quirk and fun to her. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we should just go there because we're kind of beating around the bush. I-, I do think that there needs to be a new shot at adapting Carnival in Flanders to be a musical. And yes. I don't think that this version of the musical should happen <laughs> again. No, it needs to be a new composing team. It completely and, needs to be a t- new team. And I think 100% female, not in the cerebralis pop vein but musical theater uh, it needs it needs a female book writer and it needs a strong female musical theater writer right yeah i actually have the perfect woman in mind for this okay all right her name is shana taub i believe okay, I, is love, how you pronounce- I love shana taub yeah i actually was introduced to her in old hats okay which was that really beautifully done clown comedy sketch show on Broadway and her and her band did the music that went along to the review. Oh, wow. Um, really unique. If you ever get a chance, if you have Broadway HD, go watch it. It is one of the most favorite things I've ever watched. Basically anything like anything oh, I've yeah. ever watched. And it stars Bill Irwin and David Shiner, who Aww, are the cat like, hat. Yeah, they're lifelong clowns. Like oh, that yeah. is that is what they do. And this show is so beautifully done. And like I said, Shayna Taub and her band do all the music and she wrote original music for it. And they like even released an album. Oh, wow. I, oh, my gosh. It's so much I, fun. Wait, I, I, I didn't see it in New York, unfortunately. And oh, OK. I mean, you know, I have my reasons for not watching things on Broadway <laughs> HD, yes. uh, which I'll get over one day. But <laughs> uh, I didn't know there was music in it. I mean, I yes. imagine there would have been scoring, but I didn't know there were songs. This is going to be one of those things that Christina contributes to Bobby's Ooh. magical cabinet of mysteries okay um because it's so much fun but she is actually writing the devil wears prada musical with elton john right now oh interesting so she's doing lyrics her lyrics yeah she she is his lyricist okay Um, she's also a composer in her own right and like has her own solo musician career as well she plays like something crazy like 10 instruments oh wow Really talented woman, but I actually think she she's so smart. She's really funny comedy writer. Right. So I actually think 
she would do a beautiful job at this show. I'm all about it. I think that this show absolutely needs to be done again. I think it needs to 100% come from the feminist perspective. A spoiler alert. I mean, you're never going to see the show, listeners, uh, the old <laughs> version. Uh, one thing that pisses me off about the original film, which I did get to watch a lot of, um, and it's hard to say whether or not they did this in the musical, but I imagine they did, is after these women do all of this stuff, they make peace with the, you know, the Spanish army, you know, with the Duke and everything, you know, which allows the town to not be taxed for a year. This is in the movie. Again, I'm imagining Broadway as well. She gives her husband all the credit for it. That will not happen in the new version. <laughs> no, it will not. <laughs> no, it will not. Uh, and one little beautiful moment from the film I would love to see explored in a new version as well. Again, hard to say if they did it, but 1950s American Broadway, I doubt it, is it weirdly pioneers like an early like LGBT victory in the original oh, film. Oh, amazing. There's one of the Spanish soldiers, you know, they're all trying to get with the women, you know, haha, misogyny, course, like yeah. whatever. There's one who is not interested in that. He's just interested in knitting and needlepoint. <laughs> and he ends up forming this beautiful, quote unquote, friendship with one of the, you know, uh, male villagers in you know Aww. in the village and so it's kind of like this meeting of the spanish soldier and whatever and having this moment together again in 1935 it's the gay romeo and juliet it, it kind of and it's like let's play that up too come on yes. let's that let, move it to the forefront i mean oh my gosh there's so much we could play with in a contemporary version of this show and you can still keep it in 1616 Right? Absolutely. Like, we can stay there. That's fine. You're right. This show should really be completely revamped. Throw out the old, keep the original um, script of the film, right? And adapt it from stage from the original film script. Right. But yeah, let's throw out the original and let's start over because I think that there is actually a really wonderful potential for this show. I mean, I don't think it was done regionally. At least I couldn't find anything of it being done since these six performances on Broadway. No, I thought I might have read somewhere that like a musicals tonight or the York might have done oh, a sure, revival, yeah. but I misread that or I couldn't find it when I went back. I don't think this show has been done again. I think this is one of those ones which is it's so Again, the score, not my favorite thing in the world, but, yeah. uh, you know, we've we've talked over the, the first 12 episodes of this podcast. We've talked about a lot of shows that have been based on a lot of things of the 12 we've talked about. This is one of the ones that I feel strongly that the source material begs to be a musical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's so weird. I yes, don't know. I, I, I completely agree with you. The whole time I was doing this, I was like. A, how did I not know more about the show before we went into it? Because it's kind of <laughs> weird that I didn't. But there's not much there, you know, as far as no. the historical record. But yeah, I mean, another way you could go with this. And like I keep going to my head, you know, the, the head over heels route, you know, take like the mm. music of the Go-Go's and like make this plot work. But I feel like that would be so cheap because it would no, really. I, yeah. I think that the opportunity exists for creating an original score. Yes, uh, I a, really do. A really like just a, a, a good girl power, like quirky, fun ladies being, you know, 
at the top of their game, but also being funny without being like damsels in distress funny. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, and then like, you know, showing these these big bad Spanish people, you know, yeah. from an immigrant standpoint, like they're also not awful people that it's all just rumors and it's these ridiculous Yes, and I think that there's a way to also show that there's a lot of misunderstanding when invasions happen. Oh, like if absolutely. you look at history, the miscommunication that exists with these moments in history is ridiculous. And I'll I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think that if women were actually the ones coming in and having these conversations, there would be a lot less communication miscommunication happening and a lot more like at the top of it being like okay how do how do we fix this what do we need what's going on <laughs> i mean well and if this musical were to be successful it would be so incredibly dangerous in the most delicious way possible because it really just proves that women should be political leaders sometimes i'm just saying i, may, I mean i'm just saying like because yeah. but also maybe like broadway producers and uh you know the people in charge of the broadway league maybe who knows yeah, just anyways yeah I yes, I completely agree. Now, the question becomes, Bobby, because there was one great hit from this original score. Right. Right. With Rainy Day. Do we keep that? Do we keep it as an opportunity <laughs> to like play pay homage? I mean, or the, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that is, well, I mean, they did it in Rocky, right? <laughs> <That's> um, right. <laughs> but uh, I think you could. I mean, do you know, is it over the rainbow? Do I think it's the most iconic standard ever? I definitely had heard the song before we did our research on this. Okay. Uh, so it's not an unknown piece of material to me. Uh, I think there's an argument either way. I think it would be a nice tribute, you know, to the original piece to maybe incorporate that song. It's gorgeous. Um, it's it's definitely it's definitely a beautiful song. I mean, Dolores singing it in the 70s was was absolutely yes. gorgeous as well and yeah. in the show there's more than just that really pretty ballad part there's right you know it does have a reprise yeah i think you could put it in i don't know what are your feelings on that what i would want is in my fantasy world of christina gets to pick things um we have Shayna. she's writing the music and lyrics for this show right and I would want to hear what she comes up with and yeah. then see if Rainy Days fits in. I would not want to put that on to a lyricist composer to like keep something like that and then be restricted in their creativity. Right. So I think that for me, I would want it. I would want it to be an option. Yeah. But not necessary. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think I just changed in my mind. I think I don't want it in there. I feel like this needs to be a I know it needs to be a girl power thing. Like, I agree. Like and I don't think Rainy Day actually helps the plot. I think it's a great song. It's pretty. I just don't think it actually helps the plot of what we're trying to tell, right? I mean, we need a strong new book and we need strong points of view. I think we need to modernize, you know, outside of a 30s perspective. Let this story be what it inherently wants to be which mm. is about these women proving that they can do stuff and maybe sometimes better than the men you know right and also the yeah. men turning around and saying you know what you're right yes and we need wouldn't that. that be a wonderful wouldn't that be a wonderful message to put in a musical right for the men to turn around and be like you know what i was wrong right and you were right absolutely and that's why i think forcing 
a female creative team to take the song written by Mm -hmm. two dudes and put it in the show. No, I don't think we should. That's not. No, no. Right. I like that. Bonus on the cast album. Bonus track. So I I think it's clear why Dolores Gray won a Tony for this. I mean, even despite the show's uh, maybe failings, it's such a it's such a female empowering show. Well, and it wasn't the only female empowering show that was nominated that year. So you had Can Can, which we mentioned earlier. And Can Can, actually, Gwen Verdon won for Best Supporting slash Featured Actress in a Musical alongside Dolores. So Can Can is very female-centric. I mean, it's all about the female Can Can dancers in France at the time. Right. That being said, it's a similar thing that happened with Carnival in Flanders, where the male storylines take over these strong female characters, which is really interesting. And actually... Funny thing about Can Can, it ended up running for years. This was also a really interesting season on Broadway because, in theory, there was a lot of diversity happening. Okay. In the sense that you had something like Kismet, and then the play that won for out, Best Outstanding Play was a play called The Tea House of the August Moon, which okay. was a play about post-World War II Japan. Oh, and wow. It, yeah. But it was considered a comedy. So 1954, 1954. Um, So it was but it was considered a comedy and it was basically a play about there was a military group that was left there to basically help this town resurge and and become anew after the end of World War Two. And there was a lot of political stuff involved in it. uh, But it, it actually had Asian American actors. Shocking. And then you had Kismet who didn't have anyone of Mina, which is Middle Eastern or North African heritage in their cast. It was all white people with dark features. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a really interesting... I mean, we talked about it a second ago with Carnival and Flanders, where it, it has this like female-centric plot that they kind of cover up with misogyny. Right. Same with Can Can. And like, it's, it's this... It, I don't know. I'm also looking at it hindsight 2020, right? Of course. Um, but it feels it feels like certain people were like really trying to like push boundaries and make things more progressive. Oh, yeah. And it all gets covered up and it all gets kind of pulled back and whitewashed and not that. I mean, it's so epic that bringing up these shows to to think these shows and these people in these shows happening at this time. I mean, Gwen Verdon was a force to be reckoned with. Yes. I mean, it is it is one of those things that I think over the years we think of her as a dancer, you know, and she's Bob mm-hmm. Fosse's wife. But you, thank you to Lynn manuel and the team who did Fosse Verdon on FX, yeah. you know, reminding us, I'm not saying showing because it was there all along, reminding us how much she not only contributed to his work as a director and choreographer, yeah, uh, but also she was a true triple threat. I mean, th- this was a contemporary of Ethel Merman, and these were the brightest stars on Broadway. So, yes. you know, her being in a show where sadly the men overshadowed her character when she was the one only reason people were buying tickets. I mean, I've heard people in the industry say Can Can doesn't work without Gwen Verdon. Right. You can even put another triple threat in there. It's her star quality that made that show, specific yes. star quality that made that show work. Because she got one best supporting, it leaves room for Dolores Gray, who I think in a show that still has these like shadows of misogyny and just the 1950s looming over it, is allowed to, I think, 
as a woman and as an actress shine a little bit more, even though the material that's been written for her might not be the strongest. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Tonys are always an interesting time in our industry. We always get excited because we we get excited to support those who we've loved. And especially if we've had the honor of actually getting to watch some of these shows that you're like really rooting for the ones you saw. Uh, like, oh, yeah. it's, it's not like the Oscars, right? Where everybody has the opportunity to see these things. No, no, not everyone does. And so when I always find that when it's a season where I actually got to see some Broadway shows, oh, yeah. I find myself rooting for the ones I saw because it feels like I'm a part of the team. You know what oh, I mean? Oh my God. Well, even <laughs> Being part of the team, you know, very peripherally assistant yeah. to the producer of, uh, you know, The Visit on Broadway. Yep. Um, there's just, you know, people think of it just it when you're a Broadway fan, when you're growing up, you're like, oh, it's the Tonys. They're going to give it to the best one. And there's so many behind the scenes politics yeah. and things like that, um, that, you know, you have to remind yourself when the Tonys happen that at the end of the day, you know, the Broadway League, it is a commercial for Broadway. So I think that kind of brings us to having a conversation about this year's Tonys. Okay. We do have nominations. And I find this year really interesting. This year, you have an entire best score, <laughs> and it's all plays. It, it's, and you, I mean, when you analyze the reason that this has happened, Broadway has shut down before all of the original musicals could open. And the reason original musicals push back their openings, if they can, if they have the money, if they have the connections, if they can get the theater they want, is you want to open as close as possible to the Tony ceremony, so or to the cutoff date, so that your show doesn't flop and close before you can get that exposure on national television. Exactly. But when COVID hits, none of them opened, and the only musicals nominated for Best Musical are jukebox musicals. Yeah, you had Jagged Little Pill, Right. Moulin Rouge and Tina, the Tina Turner musical. Right. So all of these shows are pre-existing music that has right. been rearranged and dramatized, which is what you want. But none of them are original scores. So all of the original scores nominated this year and there are five of them. There are, are five, plays. five of those. That's I mean, it, that's awesome for the people who compose music for plays. This has got to yeah. be, uh, you know, a huge celebration because sometimes we get zero nominees in this category. Yes. Sometimes we do get a couple. We get one, maybe two. But really to have an, a year where the entire category is filled with and and I mean, people and some of Broadway's biggest composers do it, too. I mean, Sondheim has written for plays. Jason Robert Brown has written music for plays. Um, you know, a lot of times people don't even realize that when you're watching a play, there's music playing and it totally yeah, and shapes the dramatic effect of it. So just I'm going to name them off so everyone knows what we're talking about. We have A Christmas Carol, which was actually a play, but there was music to it. Right. Um, the Inheritance, mm -hmm. The Rose Tattoo, uh, Slave Play. Okay. And The Sound Inside, which I actually had the pleasure of seeing. And it is it that play messed me up for like 24 hours. I was really messed up after watching that play. It was so great. But yeah, I, I'm fascinated to, I hope that what this does mean is that we have the ability to listen to these scores. Like you, you could listen to a movie score, right? right. Um, I would really be interested to listen to um, what, what these sound like, because uh, aside from the sound inside, I didn't, I wasn't able to see all of these. Right. So I, I think that would be really interesting. 
I mean, they sell film scores. Like, why not? Why not Broadway play scores? You know what I'm saying? This is going to be the most fascinating Tonys ever. Um, I'm actually like really excited because to a certain extent, because there wasn't a ton that could be nominated, it kind of leveled the playing field a bit. It did. Well, and we might get some Dolores Gray moments in this. You know, we don't know if all of these shows are coming back and we don't know if they do come back, if if these shows are going to be successful. So we might very well get some Tony Award winners for flops, uh, which potentially I mean, I mean, you have Karen Olivo, who is nominated, but has already announced that she will not be coming back to Moulin Rouge, um, which if you haven't taken a deep dive into what's going on in New York with the Broadway community, I suggest you do do a couple Google searches. There's some amazing material out there and to educate yourself. Right. Um, but and what Karen stands for is incredible. And I am in full support and I get behind her 100 percent. Right. And so I'm interested to see. I'm just yep. interested to see how this turns out because Tina Turner hadn't been running that long. Right. No, but, uh, you know, Adrian. It's Adrian Warren, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was the favorite to win. I know. And she's incredible. I mean, I've seen I mean, some of the videos. It's it's uncanny, really. And that's that's a that's an award that's you know, that role in and her being able is so long past due. You know, I went on a, a huge dive recently. A couple months ago, Jim Steinman passed away. And mm-hmm. there was a moment in the early 2000s where he and his producing friends formed a music group called the dream engine uh with rob evan and a couple other people who had been in uh, you know various steinman projects over the years and adrian warren's in it like in the early 2000s and she oh, is wow she's a featured vocalist in the dream engine group and um so she's been working consistently in the industry like yeah uh, like 15 years and yeah she, i mean and she's not much I mean, she's our age, so she's yeah. been doing it. She has been doing it since uh, you're very young. So it's really cool to see her blossom into again. It's also yeah. fun to see her get her time in the sun. right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And there there were more plays that actually had opened prior to COVID than there were musicals. So the plays this year. They've got some stiff competition. You know what I'm saying? Oh, epic. Epic. Like the revival of Betrayal is I saw that and that was wow. That was that hit you over the head. Amazing. It was so beautifully staged, so beautifully acted. Um, I'm actually shocked that the entire cast, because it's only a three person cast for those who don't know, um, wasn't nominated especially because there's so much opportunity this year for that. Tom Hiddleston was the only one who was nominated of the cast. Um, But I'm really, I'm actually really excited because I I was able to see some of this season. So like I said, at the top of the Tony talk, I always get excited. I want to root for those that I've seen because I'm like, I saw that. They were great. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and then you have Slave Play, which was the, oh yeah, the dark, I mean, but I, it was the darling, but I don't know if it was expected to be the win. I mean, that the inheritance was epic. I mean, this is an epic season for plays. And yes, you know, you had Frankie and Johnny as well. The revival uh, of Frankie and Johnny. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, the the Tony awards when they happen, uh, are going to be super interesting this year, but I do think we could end up with some of these Dolores Gray moments and, um, you know, Broadway does have a history 
of of giving awards sometimes to the shows that aren't the most successful in the world. You know, some of some of our favorites uh, that we don't people don't even realize Sweeney Todd technically flopped on Broadway, uh, which always surprises me. Uh, everyone that's one of those ones people want to fight you for they're like it's not yeah. a flop like well actually um but it did great on the road friends yeah it did make its money back so i think officially the original productions of sweeney todd made its money back <laughs> uh but it closed the loss on broadway and i think that's really awesome for the tony voters and the broadway league to award excellence when they see it even if audiences don't show up i mean i think that's really admirable uh, for these moments like Dolores Gray and, you know, things like Kiss of the Spider Woman. That's another one. Like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've talked a couple in previous episodes and you should go back and listen to our previous episodes to learn more about Tony winners who were in flops. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, famously, you had Flora, you had Liza winning as the youngest at the time, the youngest Tony winner for right. a flop. Then you also had Angela Lansbury. You know, at I, I oh, mean, dear she was, world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like there you go. Like there you go. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, I guess that was more than a couple weeks ago. But you know what I'm saying. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is certainly infamous and it's certainly a way of the industry recognizing great work. Right. Even when that great work isn't commercially successful. Yeah. I mean, it, it I think it takes a lot of like a lot of chutzpah. No, that's the wrong <laughs> word. I, mm, the word I want to say is just inappropriate. Uh, it takes a lot of <laughs> balls. It takes a lot of balls to give the award to someone who isn't going to directly benefit from it. You know, the yeah. idea when a show wins best player, best musical, you know, that can go on the marquee. It's going to sell tickets. Someone mm -hmm. will buy a ticket because they go see the best musical. To, right. You know, to win best actor, best actress, you know, in anything, people buy tickets for that. So to give it to somebody who's no longer doing the show, if the show's not there, because they were the best is, I think, really awesome when, when it is awesome. the theater world does that. And then you have shows that poke fun at the fact that they've never won a Tony, like Something Rotten. They oh, did their absolutely. entire ad campaign on best musical to not win a Tony. Absolutely. And, you know, in something rotten, it, they, you know, they didn't get the Tony love that a lot of people in the community thought they should get. And they, you know, they made lemonade out of that. They, 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 they took I those. I mean, it's in the title, something rotten. I mean, it's almost <laughs> like they expected not to get any Tony love. You know, Tony <laughs> Awards. Um, but I have to say, if that opening number is not the most epic, like every single out of work actor, dancer, singer in New York isn't traipsing down Times Square in that opening number. I mean, I want it massive. I mean, we massive. It needs it needs to be bigger than Neil Patrick Harris. In his, you know, it's not just for gays anymore. It needs to be bigger than Hugh Jackman singing One Night Only and kicking yes. to the sky. And bigger than that. We need every Broadway composer. I know Sondheim just like retired, 
a couple weeks ago. No, nah, no. He's coming back. Out of retirement. They need to be <laughs> writing the We Are the World for Broadway. Like, it needs yes. to be that. I mean, we need we need the Phantom showing up. We need Glinda to come down in her bubble. We need Patti Lapone to come out and do Fosse. Like, we need <laughs> everything. Because we need to be yelling from the top of the Empire State Building. Broadway is back. Yeah. I Look, it's the only way that we know how to do this. High kicks, high seas, screlting from the rafters. Well, that's our show, everybody. All about Carnival and Flanders. Happy kind of Tony Awards, uh, boys and girls. Uh, I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about this lost and forgotten um, Lost and forgotten, yeah. Fabulous failure. Uh, but one that, you know, we are super passionate about that needs to be re-musicalized. Yes. I like that. Re-musicalized. Not revised. Re-musicalized. Re-musicalized. And you know what? And tune in 2026. My Favorite Flop presents the new Carnival, Carnival in Flanders. In Flanders. <laughs> Just look out for it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Perfect. I love it. Okay, so now we would normally give you the first clue for our next show. But as we mentioned at the top, we are actually going to be taking an intermission for a couple of weeks. So during this intermission, we would like to invite all of you to partake in the merch table. The merch That's table. Right. Merch is coming your way. And we're super excited about it. But don't worry, we're giving you plenty of time to run to the restrooms first. The Flop Shop opens officially on June 18th. Make sure to check out myfavoriteflop.com on June 18th for the link to our Flop Shop. And get all sorts of My Favorite Flop goodies because we know you're all sitting there thinking, damn, I really want a mug with their logo on it. Which, speaking of, we're actually, instead of doing a clue, we are going to have a drawing. That's right, a drawing. So you have to answer this question and email us the answer. Bobby, you want to give them the question? Absolutely. And what we should say that the reason they're doing this is because the drawing is for one of those mugs with yes, our logo is. on it for freezies. We okay. will mail you a mug. We're going to mail you a mug. Okay, so you have to answer this little bit of trivia. It's not really a clue. It's more like a trivia question. Um, it's kind of hard, kind of easy. Uh, again, it's a drawing. So the more of you who enter, the more fun it's going to be. Uh, but the trivia bit is this. Who has hosted the most Tony Awards telecasts? Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. And I'll give you a hint. It's someone we've talked about on this podcast. It could be like 5,000 people at this point. <laughs> um, yes, but that means you get to go back and listen to our previous episodes to make an educated guess. Now, yes. for those who get it right, and email us at myfavoriteflop at gmail.com. That's again, myfavoriteflop at gmail.com. Email us your answer with your name. And then we are going to put the those who got it right into a hat. And we're going to do a live drawing on Instagram. Yes. We're super that... excited. It's going to be so much fun. And we'll be doing that live drawing on June 18th at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So make sure to head over to our Instagram live feed to watch as Christina and I, or one or the two of us, you know, COVID, uh, pull that name out of the hat so you can be like, oh my gosh, I'm the winner. And you can get that free mug. <laughs> so 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just catching this episode, hi, it's episode 12. There are 11 more that you need to go back in to listen to. Um, and if you have listened to some of the episodes, this is a great moment for you to go and tell all our friends. Uh, so, Christina, where can they find My Favorite Flop? Well, you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I mean anywhere. We're even now on Pandora. Pandora. That's right. We're on Pandora. So exciting. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, all of them. We're everywhere. And make sure to click the subscribe button because it's free. I promise it's free if you click the subscribe button. If you like us, leave us a five-star review and then come talk to us on our social media. We really enjoy chatting with you guys and hearing all of your thoughts on all of the flops. And that's what I was going to say, uh, is even though we're taking a break from releasing new episodes of the podcast, uh, our social media feeds are going to stay super active over the next several weeks, because not only will I continue posting magical, mystical things from my magical, mystical cabinet of mysteries. No, no, no. While y'all are out visiting our merch store and buying all of the merchandise, we have actually teamed up with some amazing partners to create some really awesome goodies for y'all. So stay tuned to this space for Ice Cream at the Interval, Missy's Quarantine Cookies, and I can't even believe this last one, but we have teamed up with the amazing mixologist, Damon Gravina, who has crafted for us a My Favorite Flop Tale or two. And then make sure to tune back in on August 3rd. That's August 3rd. Those butts better be in their seats prior to the lights going down for the opening number of Act 2, which we are subtitling Breaking the Rules. If you thought you knew our formula here at My Favorite Flop, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. So, Christina, as we leave these kids out for intermission, do you have any parting words for them? This intermission will be singing hiatus. It's our hiatus. But um, hey. Okay, bye. Bye. bye.